Well, today as we turn to Exodus, uh, we're going to talk about furniture in a house. Uh, And so now I have all the women's attention. And we're going to talk about building that furniture. And so now I've got all the guys' attention. So we should have everybody on board. We're talking about furniture today. And this is specific to uh, God's tabernacle. This is the tent that God is telling them to construct as they're going out of slavery and towards the promised land. But he's been forging a relationship with this people of Israel. And we've seen recently how he made a covenant relationship. They, they spelled out exactly what was going to happen in this relationship. Um, that covenant that they made was really going to be a way of showing them that they were incapable of following the rules and giving, uh, getting holiness on their own. There was no way to be perfect on their own. And yet all these things are also serving as an illustration, as a way of God sending a sacrifice, Jesus, who would come later. So all this will tie together. But Moses, as he goes, is being told uh, how to build this thing. And as he's told how to build this tabernacle, this tent, he is shown a pattern. Now, that pattern is what it looks like, the reality of which is in heaven. He, he is shown this is what it looks like in God's real throne room. And so I want you to create um, not a playhouse, but something that is, is reflecting that on earth that the people will see and know what the reality is up in heaven. And so he begins to lay out this blueprint uh, by which Moses and the people will build this tabernacle. And so he's told to, to build exactly as the pattern, the reality that he's shown in heaven. So we're going to take up with this story. And, 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 and what we're going to look at now is what is right in the middle of the tabernacle, of God's house. And I want you to consider uh, the most important place in your house. I know some of you have it. Some of you, it's maybe in the kitchen where you like to make different things. Maybe your Apple Jacks or something. Uh, maybe for you men, it's at the recliner, right? In it, where, where you can watch the ball game or the rodeo on TV or whatever you watch on TV, the car race, uh, whatever it is. But you have that place and maybe you have that piece of furniture that's just the most precious to you. You could take away everything else, but not that thing. That's what we're talking about today as we get into the very center of God's tabernacle. It's called the most holy place. And there's a piece of furniture in there that we're talking about today that has important significance, not only for what was going on in Israel, but really what it's signifying in heaven and how that relates to our relationship with God. So let's take a look at this. This is Exodus chapter 25, Exodus chapter 25. Leading up to this, the people have been told to gather together different things to help make the tabernacle, everything from goat skins to uh, precious metals um, and different things. Here we come into verse 10 when it begins talking about how to build this important piece of furniture. It says, They shall make an ark of acacia wood. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, a cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold. Inside <clears throat> inside and outside shall you overlay it. And you shall make on it a molding of gold around it. You shall cast four rings of gold for it and put them on its four feet. Two rings on the one side of it and two rings on the other side of it. You shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay, it, overlay them with gold. And you shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry the ark by them. The poles shall remain in the rings of the ark. They shall not be taken from it. And you shall put into the ark the testimony that I shall give you. So this all important piece of furniture is an ark. Now, when we hear the word ark, we sometimes immediately want to jump to Noah's ark. But they're two different things. And in fact, the word 
for Noah's Ark is different from the word that's used for Ark here. This is more of a container. Um, some of you might think of maybe a jewelry box, but as far as, as this container goes in its, its breadth and width and height, you might want to think more of a chest that some of you maybe hold dear things of the past in at your house. And this is like a wooden chest like that. It's, it's a box. It's got an opening. And in fact, they're supposed to put something inside of it. It said the testimony. That's the covenant that they're making. And so the commandments are going to go, those tablets, and they're going to sit inside this box. It's overlaid in gold and it, it has poles that go through rings. And that was because they were going to carry it by those poles. And that is because um, they weren't supposed to touch it. Why weren't they supposed to touch it? And the reason is because it was so holy. It was reserved. You weren't supposed to put your fingers on it. Um, and in fact, one guy later on goes out and grasps it and dies. And so, and so these rings uh, had these poles and they would carry this all important piece of furniture um, that contained the covenant. Later on, it also contained some other important things like Aaron's staff and also a jar of the manna that they were going to eat. And so those were put inside. But this had a purpose. It wasn't just that something fancy that you could show people. Hey, look at this fancy box I got in my house. This served a purpose. So let's keep reading because that's going to show us a little bit more. In verse 17, it says, you shall make a mercy seat. Uh, some of your translations might say an atonement cover. And we'll talk about what all that means. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be its length and a cubit and a half its breadth. And you shall make two cherubim of gold of hammered work. You shall make them on the two ends of the mercy seat, one cherub on the one end and one cherub on the other end of one piece with the mercy seat. Shall you make the cherubim on its two ends? The cherubim shall spread out their wings above overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings, their faces one to another toward the mercy seat. Shall the faces of the cherubim be. And you shall put the mercy seat on the top of the ark. And in the ark, you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. There I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. And so previously we talked about the box, but what happens next is it says there's this mercy seat on top and it gives a full description of what they should put on these cherubim and facing each other and their wings spread out. It's hard to imagine, but right here we have a picture of, of an artist's rendition of maybe something that that would look like. You see the box with its golden poles uh, through the rings and then the, the, the mercy seat that sits on top and the cherubim with their wings outstretched. And we have another picture as well. Um, another artist's rendition of maybe what they, I think they got this one wrong, actually. They were told specifically to have gold around those poles that they, they had them through. So, so um, these are just artist renditions, but maybe give you a little bit idea. And let's, let's talk about this for a second, because this, this, this thing that goes on the top has importance. You know, we have things in our life um, that, that we use every day, and, and they have importance too. So we might have a container, take a two-liter bottle, and it's got a cap, it's got a lid, but that's really all that it does. But I think this one serves a bigger purpose, a bigger function. So I actually have something to illustrate, a, a, a lid that maybe serves a little more function. So I got one of these. I actually use this one a lot when I'm ironing and spraying out my clothes, but it's got a lid on it too. But the lid actually serves more of a function, right? It's, got, it's a spray bottle and it's got a trigger on it. So if I need to spray, you know, I can get there. 
You know, these guys up the front need to wake up, right? Maybe Danny. So I got a function. I can use it for certain things. Well, that's what's going on here. It's not just a lid. It's not just something to say, hey, we need to keep, we need to keep the testimony in. This is actually illustrating and, and serving a function. And that's because back in that day, this would have illustrated something very important. Even back in Egypt and some of the other places, when people made a, a covenant, a lot of times maybe an international treaty and they made an oath, they would actually take that oath and they would install it below the feet of their gods. They would take it to their idol, to their deity, and they'd actually install it there as almost a testimony before the God. And so what God's told them is, I want you to take this oath that we have made, this covenant, and I want you to place it in this box. Now, it's important to understand that it's not just a box, but what's being illustrated on the top of this box by what's called the mercy seat is making sure that we know it's not just a traveling piece of furniture. Oftentimes in those days when you would see a throne and a throne room, you would have winged creatures that are flanking that throne. And so what's happening here is they're putting that oath into a box that's placed at the feet of the throne of God Almighty. It said that in that place, I will meet you. I'll be above the cherubim. And that's why earlier in the service, we went to Psalm 99 verse 1 says he was enthroned above the cherubim. Now, you can't see God. He's invisible. And that's why he made it like he didn't want to have an image of himself because that would come later in Christ. But what he said was, my throne will be among you. It'll be in the middle of this house. And that'll be the most holy place because that is that is representing the throne of heaven. That is representing the place where I dwell and I give judgment. And so they had this box that was serving a function with its lid. Now, I love this is that there's an important name that it's given. Did you see what that was? We talked about a little mercy seat. Mercy seat. And that's important because what they placed inside that was a list of rules. And if you went before that judge and he was to look at that oath that you had made with him and you said, I will do all those rules. And he said, "Okay, you're you're standing before my throne. I am here to judge you. Let's go through the rules. How would you fare? Not well, not well. And so there you are before the almighty judge and you standing there with condemnation on you. Not a good situation because in that moment, your record would be against you and you would be cast away and destroyed under the wrath of that one who sits on the throne. And so that is being reflected in that place. Now, what goes on from here is absolutely amazing. This sat in the very center of that tabernacle. And only one time a year would the high priest be allowed to go into that place. It was called on the Day of Atonement. The same word that's here used for mercy seat, atonement seat. He would go in there and he would take the blood of a bull, the blood of a goat. And there was a ritual, there was a ceremony by which he would sprinkle the blood of the bulls and the goats on, onto the mercy seat in that place. It was it was. This whole ceremony and the whole day was representing uh, the opportunity to make atonement for the sins of the people, even the unintentional sins. They didn't mean to do it. They're just sinners. They're just good at sinning. They didn't mean to when they sinned, but they needed atonement. So they would come and they would bring the blood of a bull and the blood of a goat and sprinkle it on this mercy seat, on this, this throne of God. Well, what, what good does that do? It didn't do much. Didn't do much here. Let's go to some other scriptures to look what it did do for them. I want to quickly go to Romans chapter three. Romans chapter three. 
the Jews, as they begin to grapple after Jesus, what does this all mean? And what did God intend then by this mercy seat? What was he showing in the reality of heaven and what's going on? And as Paul, this Jewish man who once lived by the law, but now lived by God's grace, he's going to illustrate what is going on through all this. So some of you have heard this very first verse very commonly. This is Romans 3.23, but we'll go a couple verses beyond that. He says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So if we were just to take a quick survey based on that, if we were all in truth, we would all raise our hands to be a sinner. For all have sinned and fall short of God's glory. Meaning this, we cannot get into that most holy place. We fall short of the ability of standing within his glory because we all sin. None of us are capable. That law speaks against us. So at this point, it does not sound like mercy, but it does sound like justice. We do not deserve to be in God's glory. It says there, if we all fall short of it, but it, then it says this, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So this says this, the word there is justified. You ever heard that word? I've been justified. You've heard that word, right? This is what that word means. If you were to go and stand before that judge and the whole record was put against you, but something came in to take your punishment for you and the judge looked to you and declared, you're guiltless. I find you not guilty. That declaration, that's what that justified means. It means that you stand in that throne room before God. And even though the whole record says it's against you, God would look at you and say, not guilty. Why? How could that happen? Not because God looks the other way, but because of what this just said. It was through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. And then it goes on to say exactly what happened. Verse 25, whom God put forward as a propitiation. That's a big word, which means a substitution and atonement gift by his blood to be received by faith. So Jesus gives you his blood in place of yours, not because you went to church enough or prayed enough or gave enough money. It was by faith of you saying it was a gift and he just loves me. And the moment you say, Lord, I see your love for me. I accept your grace. Then the blood of Jesus stands there and all your guilt went on him and he was killed for you. And the judge of the universe looks at you and says, not guilty. That is justified. Jesus was in your place, a propitiation, an atonement for you. Let's look what this says going on. It says this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. Now, this is important according to what we had read in the Old Testament. Let me read that part again. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, it's like a patience, he had passed over former sins. So this is super, super important as to why this old covenant, the Old Testament that stands against us was not capable. And it's still true today as we try to be churchy and religious and just do what we think God wants in order to earn salvation. It's not good. Because what God was doing was patiently passing over what happened. So what good was the mercy seat? Why was that merciful? Let me tell you what it was doing. I want to give you an illustration for what was happening. Old covenant versus new covenant in Jesus. So here's how we're going to do it this morning. I've got all kinds of props this morning. In here, we have an illustration of our sin. Okay, for all have sinned. 
Okay, the cleaning ladies are upset at me right now. Okay, so we've all sinned. We all see that there's this garbage. And as a result of all this, we stand with this before God and it's you're dead. We fall short of his glory. We are under his wrath. Not good. So there it is. God says here, I'm going to give you an illustration of heaven. Here is this mercy seat. Here is this day of atonement. And and you're going to do this thing. So this is essentially what happens. And some of you, this might happen in your home. Right. The cover was to come and you, you try to sweep it all. It's it's still dirty. Right. It's still there. But what happened was God said, I'm going to put this cover on for a little while and, and you're not going to be able to see it as much. Now, I didn't I didn't get it all covered, but here we go. You got this covering. Now, anybody who's looking for perfection, you got some neat freaks and some germaphobes out here. I know you would say, like, that's not clean. I could just come over and lift it up and see that it's still there. It's just covered. What, what's happened is the sin was just hidden, but it was not taken care of. He was patiently waiting for what his purpose was to take care of it. This is not good enough. All right. So I'm hiding things all over the place up here. Isn't good enough to cover it. What God did was send Jesus. And what he said was, by faith. What's happened is we're not covering this up. We're cleaning this up. What Jesus does in removing our sin is that he removes it. I got to get it all because that's what Jesus does. These things are hard to get up. All right. So the difference was when we took the rug, we went and we just hid it for a while. What we did with the vacuum was we went and we removed what was filthy? The scripture said in the past, by his patience, he passed over it. But with Jesus, what he did was the moment you said, Lord, forgive me. He took all of your crud, all that was there, all that you could try to hide, whether it was like Adam and Eve with with sewing together fig leaves and covering it up or whether you just try to be better in your life or whatever, or even the old covenant by doing that. That was just trying to cover it up. But what Jesus did was he came and he removed it all. And then God took his one and only son and he had him nailed to the cross and he took the sin and removed it from you. He removed it. And why that's important is because now when God looks at you, he declares this. You're guilt free. I see no sin in you. When I look at you, I don't see mess. I see beautiful. I see purity. And you know what that does for the heart of a believer? A true believer. You know what it's like to hide dirt in your house, don't you? You know it's still there. You have a guilt in your conscience that it's like my company doesn't know, but I know that's still there. I know mom's going to find out later that all that junk is just hiding in my closet. You know it, don't you? Hudson kids, you know it. Don't tell me that. I want to read a little bit further, and this is getting a little more into it. But but um, look at this. This is from 
Hebrews chapter 9. This is talking again about the old tabernacle, the most holy place, and what they did with the blood of bulls and goats. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices, this is chapter 9, verse 9. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. Did you hear that? What occurs with all the religiousness, even the Old Testament, is that does not perfect the conscience of the worshiper, meaning you could do all that stuff and you're still guilty and you still feel guilty. How do you worship before God when all you ever feel is guilt? It was not capable of removing. It says this, but it only dealt with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. Verse 11. But when Christ appeared as high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places. Now, again, we're not talking about earthly now. This is Jesus going into the reality of God's throne room. He didn't go in as high priest into an earthly temple. He went into the throne room. It says this, verse 12, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, his perfect blood. He goes there not with animal blood, human blood. He goes there with not uh, guilty blood, but with his own blood to say, I am using this to purify them. And it says this, by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Okay, that was a lot of words to say this. Live guilt-free. Have you ever lived a day in your life without guilt before the Lord? Maybe you said, Lord, I'm so sorry. He says, I forgive you. And yet maybe you still walk away saying, I just feel like I'm sweeping everything under the rug. Do you know that if God came in and by his Holy Spirit, he changed your heart and he forgave your heart and he didn't just hide it under the rug, but he removed it by Jesus like that vacuum and then nailed it to the cross. When he looks at you, he sees guiltless. He doesn't see all the garbage that you've done and, and your long record or maybe that one big thing that you did in the past that you have never got over. But guess what? If you are a believer in Christ and he's forgiven you, he's over it. And he wants you to live free. And that's why it said here to serve the living God. Serve the living God. I remember when we were in Seattle, we had some friends who were, were Jewish. And every week they would go to the synagogue and they would recite Old Testament passages. And they would, they would go through some of the old ceremonies. In fact, they even, um, they even celebrated the Day of Atonement. And so I remember one day we were walking in the neighborhood and here they came with their family and some friends and they had their kids and we had ours and, and here we approached them and man, they were a, a sad, somber bunch. And we said, hey, what's going on? They said, we're, we're just coming back from the synagogue. And we're like, well, what's, why are you so sad? And they said, it's the day of atonement. And I said, well, tell me about that. Like, why are you 
celebrating the Day of Atonement, but you look like you just wrecked. And they say, they said, it's just a reminder of all the sin that we've done. And it was so sad because they could not bear up under the weight of being perfect before God. They couldn't go to synagogue enough. They couldn't follow the Ten Commandments enough. They couldn't go to the, the Day of Atonement celebration enough to ever rid themselves of their sin. It was just sweeping in under the carpet and they lived in constant guilt and the, the, the just crushing notion that they were never going to be perfect before God. They didn't know freedom in Christ. They didn't know the Messiah. They didn't know what it was to stand before the throne of God and for him to look at them and say, not by your blood, but by the blood of my son, I declare you guilt free and you have no sin. Come serve me with peace and serve me in freedom and serve me because I love you to death. Come serve me. I've given you mercy. Welcome to my mercy seat. That throne room then is not one that's that's he's there to destroy you. He's there to look upon you and to say, I've removed your guilt and here's my mercy. It's a declaration that we hold on to in Christ's blood. Now, that's a lot. That was a that's a heavy theological, very, very important for us to know. But I, I know this about this crowd, too. Sometimes you preach something like that and people say, well, but tell me something to do. I want something to do. Real quick, I want to go to Matthew 18 and share a story that Jesus told. You want something to do? We'll give that to you today. This comes from Matthew chapter 18, verse 21. Then Peter came up to, and said to Jesus, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him as many as seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. And then he goes and tells this story. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a, ser- uh, a, a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. That is a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of money. 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and his children and all that he had and, and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I'll pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. So the, it's a picture of the kingdom of heaven. You have this guy who's owed debts. One of the guys who can never repay that amount of debt goes in and on his knees said, I will do it. I will, I will find a way to make payment for that debt. But how did, the, how did the king respond? Out of pity, he said, I forgive your debts. He had mercy on him, didn't he? The first thing that you can do when you hear about the atonement of Jesus in a mercy seat and that he takes away your sin is what Jesus told us to do. Repent. Say, Lord, I'm sorry. I turn my life to you. Would you remove my sin? Please have pity on me. You can't come to him and say, I'll repay that debt. It's just accepting that he already paid it for you. The first thing that you could do is just say, Lord, I'm sorry. Please forgive me. I give you my life. I call upon you to save me. Have mercy. It's the first thing you do. You know why? Because you can't do anything else until that's done. Until the judge says you're guilt free, there's nothing else for you to do. But once he's done that, then you have this incredible opportunity to live for your king. And you want to know what that looks like? Let's keep reading. This says this. Verse 28. But 
When that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, not a whole lot. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. And he refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all the debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So my heavenly father, would you do every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart? See, the unwillingness to forgive other people is a demonstration that maybe we never accepted it in the first place. But if you, if you have experienced the mercy of Jesus and his forgiveness and he has changed your heart or you're a new crea- creation, your expectation is if somebody sinned against me, how many times am I to forgive them, Lord? Seventy seven times, seven times, thousands of times. Was well, God forgiven you? Has he shown you mercy? He tells us, what should you do? Go live a life where you're showing mercy to other people. You got grudges against people. Remember this. God does not hold a grudge against you. Doesn't that feel good? We are called to not hold a grudge against other people. Sometimes that grudge is strongest among people in the church, isn't it? You want something to do is you've been shown mercy. Let's go show mercy. And that's hard. That's hard because all of us have fallen short. But as we come today, let's go to Lord and remember how he has showed us mercy. And we remember how good he's been to us. That helps us as we go out of his throne room to remember how then we are to act towards other people and to to remember that we take all that and we we have him help us in those moments to to show what mercy is and to take people to that same throne room to seek Jesus for help. So as we end in prayer this morning, we're going to sing a song and you're welcome to come down and just throw yourself at the feet of Jesus and say, Lord, have mercy on me. Lord, I have guilt. If you have guilt, ask him to take that away from you and have him declare you guiltless, free. Maybe you're struggling with a relationship. Maybe you're struggling with something where you say, Lord, I I need your help now as I go and demonstrate what it is to live in freedom, what it is to live in grace, what it is to go and show mercy and forgiveness and to live without grudges. And maybe you just need to pray over that relationship today and you're welcome to.